Welcome to this special episode of the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is sponsored by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, we take a special look at the Army-Navy game. Uh, that will be played tomorrow in the Meadowlands up in New Jersey, the 122nd meeting uh, of the United States Military Academy at West Point and the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. But first, joining me are Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who, among his many affiliations, is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Guys, thanks very much uh, for joining us. And before before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And I should also uh, commend you all to check out our two specialist podcasts each week. Uh, Cavus Ships uh, takes a deep dive into naval issues with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello. And The Downlink with our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter takes a close look uh, at um, space issues every single week. Please check them out. Uh, Michael, uh, going over to you, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Obviously, a lot uh, going on. House has passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, the Senate continues to talk about it. Uh, the uh, senior advisor for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, Mark Montgomery, uh, joined us to talk about cyber aspects of the, of the measure uh, that have unfortunately been changing. Give us your sense. Where are we on the NDAA in the Senate now? So uh, as you pointed, the House did pass uh, the, the NDAA on Tuesday. Uh, but what they passed, remember, the House had already passed their version uh, months ago. This was the compromise version, which technically would be a conference report if the Senate had already passed their own version, which they had. So this version is being sent over to the Senate for them to pass without changes. Now, it was touch and go for a while because there was some talk about some people like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand unhappy with the compromise on UCMJ and sexual assault language, wanting to change that. I think at this point, it's unlikely and it's more likely that the Senate will take up this compromised version and pass it uh, toward the end of next week. And I also think it's significant that when it did pass the House on Tuesday, it passed by an enormous margin, 363 to 70. And in fact, more Republicans voted for the bill than Democrats. There were 194 Republicans voting for the bill and 169 Democrats, which again proves that this is you know, again, the last bastion uh, of bipartisanship. Uh, one person of note who did vote against the bill was Congressman Anthony Brown, the only member of the Armed Services Committee uh, to oppose the bill because uh, he was unhappy with the compromise on uh, the UCMJ uh, and sexual assault language. Um, let's uh, go to the debt ceiling uh, first. Uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who is reviled by many in this town, has been trying to play a constructive role on the debt ceiling discussion. Talk to us about where we are and where we're going. Yes, I think, uh, uh, I think you're right. The Senate minority has played a very constructive role in uh, helping us avoid a default. So what the House did um, last week uh, and the Senate did yesterday is uh, pass a one-time piece of legislation that will allow the Senate uh, to pass a debt limit extension with only 51 votes instead of having to get to 60. So it had passed the House earlier in the week. Uh, now it passed the Senate last night. And you know, in the Senate, it only needed 10 Republican votes to pass, and it got 14. And in fact, uh, when the Senate does take up the debt ceiling vote next week, uh, there are some Republicans have indicated they will support it. So even though it only needs 51 votes, it will get uh, more than that. 
Um, and then it's unclear as to how long the extension will be, but it's most likely to be uh, into January of 2023. Now, you know, there's still other unfinished business uh, in, in the House and the Senate, although I think the rest of it will probably end up being put off into next year. I mean, the, you mentioned the BBB, the Build Back Better plan uh, that Biden's been pushing that has passed the House. Um, look, there's some rumors that uh, Schumer will put this on the floor for vote next Friday. Uh, I don't see that as a possibility. I mean, he would put it up knowing it would fail uh, to add pressure to get a deal done in early January. But uh, you know, as of now, there's no text of the bill to even vote on. There's still negotiating provisions of the bill. We don't even know what the bill is going to look like. And today's inflation numbers of 6.8% were extremely high. And I think that will add more fuel to uh, Manchin's argument that, hey, we need to slow this down. We need to watch the spending and we need to, to pair this back. Now, you know, part of the concern that we've been talking about, too, is that Build Back Better takes a lot of the air out of the room when dealing with the CR and, and appropriations, because the CR extends to February 18th. If they're focused on Build Back Better, can we also get defense appropriations and the other appropriations bills done on time? And frankly, there's been a lot of optimism in the last couple of days that they can and that they will. Uh, and that apparently some discussions are going to begin next week. Uh, there's a sense that we're hearing from Democrats that they know they do need to cut the number, uh, the increase of non-defense domestic discretionary, which is at 13% right now, because they got to take into consideration all the other bills that have been passed this year, like the bipartisan infrastructure plan uh, and, the, and the American Rescue Plan earlier this year, that were also non-defense domestic discretionary. So right now, you know, we're ending this year with a sense of optimism going into next year that these things are, in fact, going to get done. Not to sound like a party pooper, right? But Omicron uh, is hovering and it's showing that it can be more competitive uh, potentially than the Delta variant, right? I mean, the reason um, the economy has taken a little bit of a two-step is the impact of Delta. And again, that inflation figure of 6.8%, as you mentioned, is is the worst in nearly 40 years, 39 years, uh, which will drive some, obviously, to uh, make an argument for uh, a little bit less uh, government spending. Uh, obviously, big debate, right? Is this us coming out of the COVID pandemic or deeper structural changes or both uh, as the Fed uh, tries to battle uh, inflation w without causing economic damage of its own? Dove, I want to bring you into the conversation. Um, obviously, uh, President uh, Biden and Vladimir Putin uh, had uh, their uh, uh, meeting uh, to discuss the crisis in uh, Ukraine. There are some who regard this as a success for Putin driving uh, the United States uh, and NATO into a deeper strategic discussion, right? So there are some who look at this as military force uh, succeeding. Um, how did you regard uh, this meeting by the president and Putin and what does it mean for whatever happens? Right. I mean, does this avert an invasion or can Putin still invade next year, as some people fear? Well, I hope it averts an invasion. The problem is it's a good start. There's no question. I mean, uh, Biden made it clear where we stand. Uh, the, the real issue is that it, it is what Biden said, which is essentially if you go in, the following will happen uh, enough to stop him from going in. Uh, the problem is that uh, it's pretty clear, at least uh, to some of us, that Russia and Belarus, in fact, we're hearing this from some of their people, have already developed a, a sort of counter sanction strategy. And everything we've been talking about essentially is sanctions. Uh, we're not shipping them all the arms they want. Uh, and it seems to me, and I wrote a piece about this in The Hill yesterday, that at a minimum, we should have a kind of Berlin airlift or airlift to Israel in 73, where we really send them every single thing they want. We may also want to uh, add to the people we have on the ground, send some uh, special operators to help them with, uh, with training and organization. Um, uh, it, it, that's what you do before they invade. Uh, he may want to invade because uh, 
I don't think he'll take the whole country, by the way. Uh, he'll do what Hitler did in Sudetenland in 38, which is to say, uh, I've been welcomed in, as he's already done with Luhansk and Donetsk and, and the Crimea, uh, and slice off the eastern part, the Russian-speaking part of the country, and then wait and see how the West responds. So this is not a de definite stoppage of, of his plans. Um, and of course, uh, he still does want uh, NATO to uh, essentially Finlandize in, in the Cold War sense, uh, Finlandize Ukraine. So he's got a couple of objectives here. And uh, as I say, Bi Biden uh, made a very, very good start. The question is, is it enough? Uh, and, and to do this in a way that doesn't reward right Russia massing forces, right? I mean, because you don't want the Russians thinking like, hey, every time I use force, uh, I can actually get what I want or get a lot of what I want. Well, so far, of course, uh, in Georgia and uh, the Crimea and eastern Ukraine, they did get what they wanted. Um, I mean, remember, this guy's on a winning streak and we've got to stop him. Um, let me uh, go to another uh, nation that appears to be on a bit of a winning streak, and that's China. Even though its actions are organizing the world against it, it continues uh, with its genocidal policies towards uh, the Uyghurs. It includes a crackdown um, on the Chinese uh, people. Uh, and we have, obviously, um, Peng Shui, uh, the uh, uh, tennis uh, player uh, who's uh, disappeared from view in the wake of uh, allegations that China's vice premier may have sexually uh, uh, assaulted her. Um, you know, the, the President Biden has decided to do a diplomatic boycott, let athletes uh, participate in the Olympics, wanting to avoid a 1980 uh, situation where President Carter uh, banned American athletes from competing in Moscow in the wake of uh, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. Did President Biden get this right? I'm not sure. Uh, it depends what, where you want to look. If you want to look at 1980, then, yeah, he got it right, because it, the, what President Carter did made absolutely no difference except hurting the athletes. But if you look at 1936, where we did send a delegation uh, of players, uh, it really uh, boosted Hitler's image. Uh, and uh, the question then becomes, if we send the players, because nobody's going to pay attention to diplomats except other diplomats uh, and government officials. Ordinary folks aren't going to care less. They never do. They don't even know who's coming as far as diplomats are concerned. But if the players come, the athletes come rather, uh, the Chinese are going to make this into a triumph and they're going to say, see, uh, the world really doesn't care about what we're doing internally. And yeah, a bunch of striped pants diplomats aren't coming. So what? Uh, that's the tough choice that Mr. Biden has to make. Uh, as, as with uh, the, the uh, Ukraine and, and Putin, he's made a good start. The question is, is it enough? Uh, and it's a very tough call. You don't want to deprive athletes who, who've been training for years. Uh, and who've looked to this. But on the other hand, look, if an athlete gets injured, uh, they don't play. Um, this is about genocide. And how many times are we right. going to look? Indeed, right. I mean, we say never again. And yet uh, we, we allow it, uh, I mean, unfortunately, always to happen again, uh, or at least uh, move uh, after, after it's too late for too many. Uh, I should point out, China says that countries that boycott the games in any way will pay a price for their mistaken acts. Uh, you got to love that rhetoric. And it's very interesting that on this call, um, there are Republicans who think that the president got it right, Marco Rubio being one of them. And yet uh, French President Emmanuel Macron called it a teeny tiny act that's insignificant, right? I mean, his, his view is you either boycott or you, or, or you don't boycott, uh, ult ultimately. 
uh, in, in order to move that needle. Uh, let me uh, take you to the Conference of uh, Democracies and uh, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz's visit to the United States. I suspect the word Iran came up uh, in those conversations in the Pentagon and all of Washington. Start us with the Conference on Democracies. Uh, is this the needle mover that the administration hopes it will be, right? This notion of bringing democracies together to fight against authoritarianism and also better stand up to authoritarian states, whether they're China or Russia. I don't know. Um, it's going to be a headache for the administration as well. Uh, Singapore wasn't invited and, and they're outraged. Uh, they're pointing out to the fact that Pakistan was invited. And nobody will call Pakistan a complete democracy any more than it, it, one could argue that Singapore is more of a democracy than Pakistan. Singapore has never been run by a bunch of generals off and on over the years. Uh, and we need Singapore. Uh, we have the naval facilities there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's not at all clear to me that this thing is going to wind up a net plus. Uh, it'll be it's a nice gesture. It's not clear what it will accomplish. But if it alienates uh, some of our friends and, and uh, convinces some semi-democracies that they're acceptable, uh, I don't know how successful this thing it really is. And uh, conversations about Israel, uh, Iran, uh, as uh, uh, the United States and its JCPOA partners continue to try to negotiate a deal? Well, you know, there was a brief meeting and then the Iranians walked out again. Uh, you know, the Israelis would, they, they've always hoped that whatever they do against Iran will have American support. Uh, that's still not clear. That's what they keep trying to do. But the difference, of course, is that whereas Netanyahu was a showman and made all kinds of public statements and alienated half of uh, American politicians on Capitol Hill, uh, they're doing it uh, much more discreetly, which uh, obviously is appreciated by the administration. Uh, but uh, obviously talks are going on and uh, the Israelis are determined to stop the Iranians and the Iranians seem determined to go ahead and not really negotiate a deal at all. And uh, very briefly, what were your key takeaways uh, from uh, the Reagan uh, National Defense Forum? Uh, your son, Roger Zakheim, uh, did a terrific uh, job along with the entire team there. Uh, and it was great to see everybody in person. Uh, what were some key takeaways from your standpoint? Well, I think one big one was that you had Republicans and Democrats actually talking to each other and working together. And the outcome, of course, we saw with, with the NDAA. Uh, so that was critical. Another one was a very, very deep concern about China. Um, that was on everybody's lips. Uh, again, a bipartisan understanding of that. One of the things they found in, in the uh, poll that they take prior to, to these uh, Reagan fora uh, was the, uh, the military, uh, the, the military in the eyes of America continues to decline. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty steep and uh, it's a cause for concern. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about that. I mean, still, it's the most trusted uh, group of people in, in America. I mean, uh, if you look at Congress, it's, it's barely in single figures. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it it's just doesn't have the status that it had a few years back. And people were speculating, was this the, the, the politicizing that Mr. Trump tried to do? Uh, is it what, you know, the outcome of Afghanistan? Not clear, but obviously the military is no longer, you know, up at the 60, 70% range. It's below 50. Uh, and that's not where it should be. Thanks very much for joining us.
And joining me now for our Army-Navy game coverage is my co-host, my good friend, John Schofield, the co-host of the Sing Second Sports Podcast. John, thanks so very much for joining us on this very special evening. Yeah, Vago, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's always great to talk to you, but in particular to talk to you about what I believe is, is an extremely important rivalry and an extremely important day for both you know, the services Army and Navy, but for the student athletes um, that actually you know, compete in this game. I should say you come at this with a unique perspective. You come from a very distinguished Army family that apparently has barracks named after it uh, in, uh, in the Pacific, but you were also the spokesman at the United States Naval Academy. Uh, you served obviously in the Navy as a public affairs officer and you uh, retired as a uh, commander. Uh, and we're all friends with our producer and your partner uh, in Sing Second Sports and, of course, Provision Advisors, Chris Cervello. I should uh, tell the audience, right, I mean, it needs no introduction, that in December, uh, every December, the nation gathers for what is the oldest uh, uh, football, college football rivalry. And since 1890, the Military Academy and the Naval Academy have met 121 times, uh, usually in Philadelphia, sometimes in Baltimore. But tomorrow, uh, they're going to be meeting in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And over this century and a quarter, Navy is won 61 times, Army 53 times, with seven games ending in a draw. Navy won the first game at West Point 24-0, which uh, I'm sure Navy fans liked, uh, but Army uh, won the last game in 15-0, which was great for, uh, great for Army, especially in the wake of what was a long drought. Uh, this year, the game, uh, and indeed this program is dedicated to the memory of General Ray Odierno, uh, a son of New Jersey who served as the 38th Chief of Staff of the United States Army, uh, and sadly he passed away in October after a battle with cancer. Most programs are about this uh, great game itself, the players, the quarterbacks, the plays they're, they're going to run, and their performance over a season and how it's going to be reflected on what happens tomorrow. But John, give us a sense on what we're going to be hearing today, because what we tried to do is something a little bit different. For me, I I long ago stopped caring about the X's and O's and how many rushing yards and, and really who won the game. You know, you mentioned my unique connection to this rivalry. It goes beyond, you know, just the origins of my family name, which does adorn Schofield barracks and in, in Hawaii and uh, has a very famous definition of discipline that all cadets at West point are, are made to, uh, are made to memorize, but I also was made to memorize that as I was originally a member of the class of 1995 uh, at West Point. And, and I was, you know, informed very early on in that experience that I wasn't ready for the rigors of, of that type of experience. Um, and through happenstance, I happened to come into a Navy ROTC scholarship, which then allowed me to go on to the career that you summarized in the introduction. So I come at it not only having seen it as a member of the staff and faculty at the Naval Academy, and I served two tours there, but I also see it through the lens of what it takes to be a plebe at a service academy, and indeed, not just a plebe, but to endure that for four years. Now, endure that for four years and then also go out there and have two-a-day practices and carry 21 credits as a varsity athlete and be expected to go after graduation into the most rigorous of, of MOSs or, or operational specialties uh, in the Army or in the Navy. And, and then it makes you really appreciate what these young men do um, and, and what the competition means. Um, and, and so for me, the long-winded you know, end state that I'm getting to here is that, yeah, I, I don't really care about the X's and O's anymore. I care about two parts of the game. I care about the introduction that CBS does because it, it is such a credit 
Um, and I always tell people, you know, if you're going to the game, record the CBS coverage at the beginning and watch their intro because it's always tear jerking and it's always right on point. And what that does is it really helps people understand, you know, a lot of the of the United States supports and loves, um, you know, people in uniform and, and supports the less than one percent that go out and serve their nation. Uh, but not a whole lot of people truly understand it. And what CBS does through the intro is they allow people to, to have their emotions stirred while introducing you more to what the gravity of this is. And that's part one. And the second part is the end of the game when they stand arm in arm and, and they've just competed against each other for you know a ferocious amount of time out there on the field. And then they stand arm in arm and they sing their alma maters. And you know, as the name of our podcast indicates, you know, the hope for each uh, service Academy at this game is to sing their alma mater second, uh, because that means they won the game. Um, so for me, although I root for Navy traditionally, and, and my personal connection there is informed that decision, I, I really just hope for a good game. And I, and I hope that, you know, in the end, more people understand what makes this game special because it's special because of the players. Um, it's because of the sacrifice that they make. And the more people that get to tune in and watch that, or sit in a very cold and rainy stadium on Saturday and enjoy that, the better. It's such an important game that no other college games are played on the day of the Army-Navy game, and that's uh, that's an extraordinary tribute. Uh, today, we are going to hear from national uh, security leaders who attended both of these great schools. We asked all these prominent uh, graduates, whether they're uh, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, former defense secretary, serving chiefs of staff, or past or even members of uh, Congress, what the rivalry in the game meant to them over the course of their careers as cadets and midshipmen, as officers, and then later uh, in life, and why athletics play such an important part of the curriculum at these, uh, and indeed the ethos of these two great schools. And the voice you'll be hearing introducing some of these pieces is the voice of none other than our able producer, Chris Cervello. Uh, the first person we're going to hear from uh, today is uh, retired United States Navy Admiral John Greenert, uh, who served as the 30th Chief of Naval Operations. He is a proud 1975 graduate uh, of the uh, Naval Academy. And for him, this game has been uh, something, uh, especially this year, that's very special. Obviously, he was very close friends uh, with General Ray Odierno, uh, West Point, class of 1976. You know, one of the things we asked uh, Admiral Greenert was uh, what the game meant to him as a, as a mid, what it meant to him when he was in the fleet, and then, and later as CNO. Admiral Jonathan Greenert, United States Naval Academy, class of 1975. What makes it so special, we are, we, those that go to West Point and Naval Academy, we're cut from the same cloth. And what I mean by that, same culture, generally speaking, same basic training. Uh, when it comes to the teams, same basic skill sets. You know, the as far as three-star athletes, I'm told that most of them are three-star instead of five-star and uh, folks that actually want to play above their skill level and what makes it makes them do that is to come together as a team and, and the total commitment. So every year when when Navy is going to play Army, you say, you know, regardless of how the season has gone, this is probably the ultimate way to measure how good are we, how good can we be or have we become in this year and that gets to the, the spirit videos that gets to the yelling in the stadium and all of it. 
Uh, we are so much more alike than different, as they say, but we're definitely against the others uh, for that three-hour period on that day. Um, did it mean different things to you at different points in your career? Did it mean something well, different when you were a midshipman than when you were an officer in the fleet, a junior officer, a senior officer, and then as CNO? Or was it pretty much the same ultimately, right? I mean, you weren't getting to as many games as you probably liked when you were flat black and underway. Yeah, that, and that, that too. It's evolved, I'd say. As a freshman called plebe, uh, it meant that if you win, if your school wins, you get what they say is carry on for the time the game is over all the way till you go home for Christmas. Because what that means is you don't have to get yelled at by upperclassmen and you're jogging everywhere and squaring every corner and sitting up upright at meals. You sort of become like the upperclassmen. It's called carry on. And that gives you that feeling of uh, I, I'm almost at Christmas break, which means I'm almost halfway through this freshman year. So that that was special, that everything centered on that piece. And frankly, Vago, because of what I described, it is the biggest sports event and probably biggest event, you know, collectively speaking in the school. Then you you say, oh, we've accomplished this. Uh, and so. It takes you into the winter feeling great, into Christmas, and then out the other side. When you leave the school, it you almost have a, you, you know, you gather into the fleet or, or you're out um, with your platoons or your air wing, you know, if you're in the Air Force, Air Force Academy. But the way you, the way you feel, I think, is how is my school measured when you're among folks who come from different colleges, universities around the country? So um, are we a legit school? Do we have a legit football team? And so you follow that. And there's even, you know, those folks who are in your wardroom with you look to see, well, can you beat Army? And, and you sort of turn to that. Yeah, we can. So we that went to the Naval Academy uh, are legit and we can beat Army. And that's important. And they, they realized that even if they didn't go to the to the Naval Academy, they would be, you know, my peers. You move into a, a middle grade officer. And I think about that time for me, it became apparent that the school started having more success and getting a little more coverage. Uh, a lot of it was the Army Navy game. I mean, that is the ultimate coverage. The athletic department gets more uh, fiscal feedback from that than, than others. But the point is, it started becoming the Navy's team. And it was a slow evolution of from, well, those folks that went to the Naval Academy and that's their thing, to sailors actually caring about it. It became more available in the Armed Forces Network, not just radio, then TV. And as it got more coverage nationally, it became, bottom line, it became embra embraced by the Navy. And, and you know, Vago, when I would have the opportunity to speak to the team or even to speak to midshipmen, I would tell them, you know, as somebody out in the fleet, uh, I hope you all understand you're not just representing this school now, you're representing your entire service. And to the extent you play with, you know, grit and you play with good sportsmanship and, and you show yourself the values and qualities of leadership, you represent all of us out there. And uh, that's a little bit of a burden, but the other side of it is we're all pulling for you now. And then lastly, I get to, as a service chief, uh, you know, you, we get to 
as you mentioned, Ray and I, you know, we, we got into a, <laughs> a competition as service chiefs, and then we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But it became like, hey, these are these are my guys, you know, and uh, they're going to be your guys, Ray. Uh, you know, we we again, we're more alike than we are different. But here we're different and we're better. Uh, John, what are what are the some of the things that that struck you? Right. Because uh, when uh, John Greener was in the seat uh, as CNO, you were over uh, at the Naval Academy as a spokesman. Yeah, I think it, it talks about how enduring the game is. It's not just something that every plea remembers or, or uh, you know, that they remember during their four years on the banks of the Severn or the banks of the Hudson, for that matter. Um, but it stays with them throughout. Um, you know, we interview people on our podcast all the time from class years earlier than John Greener. It's members of the football team at the Naval Academy who to this day remember parts of the army navy game with such eerie accuracy now it might be just accurate in their minds um but you know for for them it's it's truly the the thing that bonds them together and i think it's really neat um that people like john greenert and, and the late ray odierno were able to draw upon this game as something that that gave them a common conversation right like you elevate yourself all the way to the chief of staff of the army or the superintendent of the Naval Academy or the chief of Naval operations. And, and you think that you'll have plenty of, of areas where you can find common ground to start a conversation to, to be that networking type. But for them, it, it's, it's awfully interesting how it always comes down to a story about them uh, being at the service academies at the same time. And they can, they can remember what the final score was their sophomore year, their first year, and, and they can talk about what happened during those games. And that for me is what's special about it, that, you know, here is this member of, of the Joint Chiefs who's balancing national security and meetings with the, the highest um, levels of leadership of this country and, and still don't talk to them during the Army-Navy game, right? Like, I mean, they're still going to do their job, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it's important to them. And I like that it's important to people who are in those high up places of leadership. We heard from uh, former Defense Secretary uh, Mark Esper, who's a proud West Point graduate, uh, and what it meant to him as uh, Defense Secretary, where he had to be neutral. But he did say that he felt a little bit better when he was on the Army side of the field, uh, right? Because obviously the Defense Secretary has to change sides uh, along with the Commander in Chief or, or anybody else who's there, right? Uh, to make sure that they're seeing the game from both sides. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, West Point class of 1986. Well, it's probably the greatest rivalry in football and between two schools. I, I think it goes back well over 100 years, but I think as you hear people say, and maybe it's cliche, that you, you have a group, two teams on the field that where all of them are willing to give their life for everybody else watching the game. And to me, that, that says a lot because they're not out there for an NFL contract. They're out there to win. And they're out there to, uh, to serve their institution and their classmates and represent their Army or the Navy. I, I did have the distinct honor of doing it both as Secretary of the Army, where I could be a full-throated supporter of the Army team, and as Sec Def, I had to uh, cheer for both sides. So now I'm uh, unfuttered, and I will cheer the Army team on this year. If you went to Army, you are not going to root for Navy. And I think that is just fine no matter what position you're in. And, and I'm glad that Mark Esper you know, owned up to that. That's the way that we should be. And, and that's, again, what's really refreshing about the Army-Navy game is that it's, 
it's no hijinks, no BS, no politics, just I'm rooting for my team because I went there. And why? Because I learned for four years that I want to beat the hell out of Army or I want to beat the hell out of Navy. They learn that in their very first day um, when they show up for I-Day at their institutions. Um, well, and that's one of the things uh, the audience will hear from uh, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries, uh, Mike Petters, who was a 1982 uh, Naval Academy graduate. You know, it's all about the rivalry and that rivalry makes you better. Uh, and, and having somebody to benchmark yourself against. Uh, and, you know, in this case, in the field of uh, friendly strife to improve yourself, right? Because absent competition, you wouldn't be as good as, as you would be. Mike Petters, president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industry, Naval Academy class of 1982. You know, there's a there's a saying about, you know, Waterloo was decided on the, uh, the playing fields of Eaton or something like that, right? Well, there is a whole lot of military strategy that is figured out on the intramural fields at West Point and Naval Academy. Um, you know, you have persistence, never giving up. Uh, it, it's, you know, lessons are lifelong, that's for sure. Having a rival uh, to measure yourself against is, uh, is the best way to get better. Uh, you know, when I, when I first went to Ingalls, years and years ago, we, we had a competition for a destroyer. It was Ingalls' first competition in 10 years. We lost badly, but boy, we learned a lot, right? And we were infinitely better for having lost that competition. Um, I think we've learned a lot of lessons in the Army-Navy game over the last few years, so I think we're ready to go take advantage of that. You know, John, you mentioned something really interesting, and I want to kind of pull on it briefly. When you talk about old-timers, it was really a college on college, right? I mean, it wasn't necessarily the national spectacle. It was something for the schools, whereas over the decades, it really has evolved into a game that the rest of the service pays attention to as well, right? It's it, it's not just between West Point and the Naval Academy. It really becomes between the United States Army and the United States Navy, isn't it? And Marine Corps, I should I should say, right? I mean, uh, sh shout out to Commandant Berger. He is a proud graduate of the United States Naval Academy as well. And you mentioned that you know, MacArthur's famous quote, you know, talk about a famous West Point graduate. MacArthur's quote, which I'll abridge, um, is upon the fields of friendly strife, um, are sown the seeds of victory. And, and this is what they all learn um, at a very, very early stage, that the physical mission, that what you are required to do at these service academies imparts upon you lessons uh, that will stick with you well beyond your time in a cockpit and well beyond your time standing in front of, of a platoon of soldiers. It will stay with you as you start companies. It will stay with you as you run for Congress. Senator Jack Reed, West Point class of 1971. You know, I played sports in high school, but at the academy we played sports constantly, and it was one teamwork, obviously. Uh, you know, give, give your all. Uh, you've got to be ready to go. And, you know, it's those are the same types of uh, uh, lessons that are you can translate into military service or, or legal practice or anything else. Representative Mickey Sherrill, Naval Academy class of 1994. I think the reason the academies focus so much on sports is really twofold. Teamwork and mental toughness. And that's what sports really taught me. Rowing on the crew team didn't just involve rowing, which is a mentally tough sport. And it's also seemed to involve a lot of running <laughs> from what I recall. <laughs> and, and so that just requires a determination to keep going um, and keep going farther and longer and fight harder. And you do a lot of that because you're doing it with your team and you're doing it for your team. 
um, to make sure that that you are somebody that is is supporting everyone and, and being a strong member of that team. You know, there are a lot of things I did in the military that I, I found uh, scary, like the helicopter dunker being strapped into a makeshift helicopter flipped upside down, blindfolded and dunked underwater was was really my idea of hell at different times. Um, but but learning that mental toughness to get you through these situations and, um, and able to serve is really critical um, to service in our military. You know, John McCain, um, you know, had, had often referenced his time. Now he was a bottom feeder academically at the U.S. Naval Academy, but hell, could he box? And, and my boss, when I, was the, uh, when I was the public affairs officer at the Naval Academy and is now the president of the University of Nebraska, uh, system um, out there used to say that find me another school, find me another place where where we graduate everyone with a requirement that you get punched in the face. And he was referencing the the requirement that you take boxing at both the Naval Academy and West Point. And you certainly learn a lot about yourself, you know, in a foxhole or you know when you're in a dogfight or when you're just trying to lead a company as a civilian after you've possibly gotten out of uniform. You, you know a lot about yourself after you get punched in the face. You know, it's like letting the grounder go between your legs at third base. You know, you, you better be hoping that the next grounder comes to you so that you can redeem yourself. That is why the Army-Navy game is merely, you know, one symbol, one, one, one part of it being America's game um, that, that belongs to the entirety of the Army and the entirety of the Navy that, that they know that their leadership, if you're just a sailor on an aircraft carrier, you know that your Naval Academy graduate division officer, commanding officer has been through a crucible and, and that you should entrust that person you know, with your service because they are going to lead you in, in the most pure, in the purest of ways. So, so yeah, I, I think it went from being something that the cadets and the midshipmen used to just joust back and forth to each other and now it's really become America's game. And you mentioned it, you know, find me another game. Find me the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry game that's played with no other games going on that weekend. You're not. This is America's game. You know, when you were saying about getting punched in the face, right, the great philosopher uh, Mike Tyson always said, everybody's got a strategy until they get punched in the face. It does tend to focus your attention in a way that, that maybe, um, you know, other uh, athletic activities uh, doesn't. And, and we'll hear from the uh, Army uh, Chief of Staff, General Jim McConville, about how important he, he thinks uh, contact sports in, in particular are. Chief of Staff of the Army, General James McConville, West Point Class of 1981. We want soldiers that are physically and mentally fit, and you know, the also we also want soldiers and leaders that can get knocked down and get back up, back up. And that's why I like contact sports. You know, uh, all of us, you know, whether you're on the, the playing field or you're going through your career, uh, you're going to get knocked down at, at times. Things aren't going to go well, and the the best leaders, the best soldiers, overcome adversity and they go on to win. He delivers that with a very informed perspective, right? You know, because we say find me another, you know, institution that actually mandates, you know, we talked about, you know, the mandatory boxing class, but, you know, Chris and I started the Sing Second Sports podcast because, you know, we, we wanted to highlight the fact that every single one of these students, you know, the, the ones that, that rise to the level of Army Chief of Staff or the CNO, they were all required as part of their attendance at that institution to play a sport. 
uh, you were either going to play one of the varsity sports or you're going to be an intramural warrior or you were going to play a club sport, but you were going to play a sport because of all of the aforementioned reasons, what the lessons are there. But it's quite another thing, you know, at Villanova, number one, I didn't have to take 21 credits, you know, in order to graduate. And a lot of these athletes are doing that, but I certainly didn't have to take 21 credits. And then from 3.30 in the afternoon to 5.30 in the afternoon, play an intramural sport or play a club sport or even longer, you know, for the football team, their physical requirement goes well beyond the mandated sports period that they call it at the service academy. So, so yeah, like making everyone do that on the same level, whether you are a club player, an intramural warrior, or a highly recruited D1 athlete getting mentions on ESPN, you're all going to play a sport because the lessons that it imparts on you are valuable. Secretary of the Navy, Carlos Del Toro, Naval Academy class of 1983. All the academies, quite frankly, devoted a tremendous amount of effort in ensuring that our midshipmen and our, and our cadets are, are developed mentally, morally, and physically to do the job that they have to do in the years ahead after they graduate from the service academies. The physical part is extremely important, obviously, for our Marines, for our soldiers, for our sailors, and uh, sports plays a very important part during the four years that you're at the Naval Academy. I myself played intramural uh, and you know at the end of a long day where you're studying you know academics all day long to be able to get out there on the field late afternoon before uh, the evening dinner and and going back to studying at night it's a release and it's it's really part of our preparation of the uh, of what it takes to be a young officer in the army and the navy secretary of the air force frank kendall west point class of 1971 the academy really prepares for a life of activity, right? Uh, the things you do there athletically are important, and uh, they, they teach you a lot of carryover sports, and I benefited from that. But, you know, the fields of friendly strife, right? The, uh, the, there is no substitute for victory. Uh, come from the world of sports, and you're, you're taught that. Uh, that's why Army-Navy is such a depressing, bitterly, uh, it ruins your year when you lose, lose to Navy. I think the, the interviews you know, speak volumes. And, and I'm so happy that you got the opportunity to, to talk to all of these leaders, which is very impressive in its own right. But then hearing them talk so, uh, so plainly about the importance of the rivalry and the importance of the game means a lot to me. You know, as, as I throw it over to you and, and as I sign off and, and very appreciative of you allowing me the opportunity to have a voice here, um, you know, I, I will say that I think that a part of Saturday's game is going to be incredibly special. I know that Navy is going to dedicate, you know, the game in some respect to the to the life of uh, Brian Bourgeois, um, who just passed away as the CEO of SEAL Team 8, uh, died in a tragic uh, training accident last weekend. Um, I do know that it's in the works that possibly the Army Apache helicopter flyover will include a SEAL flag, which for me, it says everything you need to know about what this rivalry is, is that it's between the lines, they're trying to defeat each other. But when you get outside of those lines and when you go outside of the game and when you graduate from this institution, just like John Greenert and Ray Odierno, you are brothers in arms and you're going to be brother, brothers in arms forever. Well said, uh, John. And I want to uh, point out to the audience that we're going to wrap up here and hear from Admiral uh, Greenert again. Uh, about the importance of his relationship uh, and why and what made Ray Odierno so special uh, in his eyes. Obviously, uh, the Corps of Cadets uh, is dedicating this game to the memory of their uh, late uh, chief of staff. Here's Admiral Greenard again. Ray and I met when we were both very junior three stars. Um, we were, went to a course. Uh, it was a joint course for generals and admirals 
hosted at Joint Forces Command in the Hampton Roads area, uh, General Gary Luck, a very well-known mentor for all of us, uh, hosted this course, and I met Ray down there. And at uh, first I thought, who is that giant? My gosh, he's six, five, six, six. You know, he, he looks like he could put on the pads and go out and play. He was in great shape. Uh, he had the proverbial shaved head, you know. He looked, he looked, some people, they shave their head, Michael Jordan and others, right? And Ray had that, you know, he, he should have done that his whole life. And I don't know if he did, but you get my point. And I listened to him uh, as a very seasoned veteran, great leader in the Middle East. I was, on the other hand, commanding the 7th Fleet and you're out of Yokosuka, Japan. So we couldn't have come from perhaps two separate walks of life, as you mentioned, uh, the Steel Towns in Pennsylvania and, and his, his uh, folks in northern New Jersey there. But anyway, uh, I sauntered over and, and shook his hand and chatted with him and asked him questions. And in typical Ray Odierno fashion, he was generous with his time, understanding that I, I didn't know his walk of life. And again, generally interested, how does the Navy work? How does the fleet work? Because that's our job as, as joint officers. So we, we hung out together kind of during that week, sat on the bus together. Uh, I learned of the sacrifice of his family. Uh, his son, uh, Anthony, had been injured in Iraq, lost his arm. And uh, I mean, the way the humanity of Ray, the way he described it was, uh, it, it, he was clearly hurt boy. It's a tremendous sack by it. It was a sacrifice, but you know, he's like, hey, you know, this is what we do. Things happen, you, you uh, embrace it and you do your best from there on. So a, really a family of service, a genuine guy, uh, great intellect, uh, broad view, and we, uh, our paths would cross on occasion from there. Uh, it would be a fun time catching up. Uh, and then when I was the vice chief of Naval Operations, Ray was commanding Joint Forces Command. He had just taken over it to, uh, and he was going to sundown Joint Forces Command. So we're talking about 2010 at this point. So as it turns out, the Navy is the, what they call the executive agent. In other words, we provide the funding for all of the facilities, the maintenance, keep the lights on, you, you know, utilities, et cetera, for that building, because it was in the Hampton Roads area down in Norfolk. So we had phone calls on the phone, and I think I became closer to Ray at that point because I found funding for <laughs> Joint Forces Command buildings and the things that he had to, to keep going down there. Uh, and then he uh, was promoted and I was promoted to respective service chiefs and we relieved about the same time. So uh, we got to know each other even further. Uh, and uh, I learned a great deal uh, as, a, as a typical bubblehead, you know, submariner who comes up through the ranks, Navy person. Uh, I learned a lot about how the Army works and how hard the Army works and how the sacrifices the Army uh, that took place in uh, in the Middle East and during that whole time frame, and he showed again uh, empathy and and a real desire to understand how does the Navy work. And you know what, Vago, he was uh, in fact uh, a good advocate for Navy issues when we were in together in the tank. Uh, when I would say, "Hey, look, you know, you're you're wearing out these carriers," a lot of times the service chiefs say this they they present their case for him and be combat 
teams, uh, brigade combat teams, but he would join in in that because he cared about the joint force in general. So uh, a really, uh, you know, people call General Giant, uh, that's overused. I'd call him an intellectual and caring giant of a man that uh, has been my honor to know. John, thanks very much for joining us today. I loved it, Vago. Thank you very much. Anytime you need me to talk about uh, a game that's this special, I will be of service to you. Always a pleasure um, talking to you. And uh, just let the audience know, you guys are uh, at Sing Second Sports are also going to be having some special coverage of the game as well. We've been able to talk to people, uh, you know, from, you know, kind of like you're talking about, you know, plebes um, all the way up to graduates who have now ascended to the highest rankings, um, you know, of service, which is in the, uh, which is in the mission statement at the U.S. Naval Academy flight. So, you know, being able to talk about the Army-Navy game from so many different perspectives is special, and, and we encourage people to listen. Uh, I encourage people to listen as well. It'll be well worth their uh, time. And who do you think is going to win the big game? Well, my uh, politically correct, to bring it back to that term, uh, pick is always going to be Navy. Um, but, you know, this year, I, I do think Army has a very special team. I think it's going to be very low scoring as it's going to be 60 degrees and a driving rainstorm. Um, so I, I, I hesitate to pick a winner. Um, you know, I, I, my sports mind says that Army is going to win. Uh, my heart tells me that uh, the Naval Academy is going to be singing second. So I'll stick with that. <laughs> well, may the best team win, uh, as they say. John, thanks again for joining us and to the audience. Thanks uh, very much and hope everybody has a, a great day, whether you're there in person shouting your head off at the Meadowlands or whether uh, you're indoors with friends and, and family. Thanks so much for joining us.